0: Once again, I am fortunate to welcome a phenomenal guest to Rachel Dexton Connects. Dr. Mark Tyndall is a public health physician and the former director of the BC CDC with experience in Kenya, in global health and helping to prevent HIV, to experience on Vancouver's downtown east side in helping with the overdose crisis and the toxic supply. Dr. Mark Tyndall speaks about harm reduction, both in the smoking and drug use spaces, has a wealth of knowledge to share. And I'm pleased to introduce to Rachel Thexton Connects, Dr. Mark Tyndall. Okay, so I am thrilled to welcome today on Rachel Thexton Connects, Dr. Mark Tyndall. He's currently retired and living abroad, but has a wealth of experience and knowledge that he is here to share with us today. Um, Dr. Tyndall, I just wanted to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you for joining me.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me.
0: But not only do you have a lot of insight, it's extremely timely as you well know safe supply harm reduction uh, the list goes on did you always plan to be in the medical field and if so was substance use disorder and this area of focus always something on your mind as you were studying
1: um sure I mean that when you introduce me as retired it's kind of jarring but I <laughs> I'm, I have removed myself, uh, the last year from, from, uh, sort of frontline work. I'm still involved in a, in a few projects and I'm trying to write more and reflect more. And, uh, I I'm still committed to you know helping people the best i can with their drug use i've been uh doing this for you know over 25 years so that's why i figured i needed a bit of a break and i first arrived in vancouver in 1999 so i spent the last while i lived in kenya for about four years and uh, worked uh, with hiv prevention initially i wanted to be working global health and work in hiv and then i ended up in vancouver and HIV prevention became preventing HIV among people who use drugs. So that's when my career started. And uh, basically, preventing HIV um, was harm reduction. So we wanted to uh, start out. um, I was involved in some of the initial needle exchange programs in Vancouver. Of course, Insight, I was quite involved in that Um, in 2003 when that opened since then, just been studying and promoting safer use for people who are using drugs?
0: Well, it seems that we continue, and I'm sure, I don't know how much you follow the news from from Bali, but we continue to have a a huge division on the safe supply topic, uh, which uh, personally baffles me. We lose six plus lives daily in British Columbia via drugs Mm -hmm. alone. Um, I personally support safe supply done with a, a... the right programming and specialists—it's an excellent way to prevent these uh, deaths and all these family members losing loved ones. What are your views on safe supply? I know you support it, but why do you feel that it is a smart solution from a medical perspective?
1: Well, I've been, you know, involved in this, as I say, a quite a long time, and there was always people overdosing. Um, but in British Columbia, we kept quite close track. And there was around 200, 250 people who uh, overdosed per year. And it was about 2015 or 2016 when we started, we saw a very acute rise. And I was leading the BCC Center for Disease Control at that time and I remember a meeting in the basement of the building um, when I first was made aware of the toxicology and fentanyl was starting to show up in the autopsy reports and this was uh, news to everybody back then and at that time it was maybe 10% of the deaths uh, had fentanyl in their system, and we had some discussion about that. And within six months, it was like 70% of all people who died, and there was way more people who were dying. And so it became clear that people um, weren't actually overdosing. The drugs that they were buying um, all of a sudden were uh, way too strong for them, and uh, people were caught unawares and using drugs that they... Thought were, you know, the usual drug use and being caught. Um, overdosing. Obviously, in the last seven years, people now are quite aware of it's fentanyl. Fentanyl is the only drug, only opioid drug really available. So heroin is has totally dried up and uh, that's what people are using now. So people are more used to it. But it's incredible that so many people are still still dying because even in the illegal market, you would think that by now uh, the dealers and distributors would have things figured out and wouldn't be handing out uh, such potent uh, cocktails of drugs drugs. Um, so that's a big actually a quite a surprise to me. I thought that initially maybe it takes them people a while when they're mixing up in their basements how much fentanyl to put into the powder, but uh clearly this has not uh been translated. And I think that because heroin used to be such a, a monopoly, so it came from the same place and then people distributed, but basically the same source, uh, fentanyl and these other drugs that are now in the supply are done mainly by smaller dealers and smaller operations. And there's no quality control and people are trying to make as much money as they can and they don't really seem to care what's what's in the products. really frustrating, um, but really opens up the the discussion, well, why do we have people buying drugs from illegal criminal sources anyways? So it made sense to me that uh, we would try and challenge that and rein it in and give, at least give people the option of something uh, that wasn't going to kill them. Um, so fentanyl, you know, harm reduction didn't really uh, talk about safe supply until the the street supply became unusable. And uh, so in probably in 2017, I, I wrote one of the first grants to give people out hydromorphone or dilated tablets. And I got $1.5 million from the federal government to do that. And not one pill was ever distributed from that grant. So it just got bogged down in uh, a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of pushback from the colleges of physicians, colleges of pharmacists, the, the recovery people. People did not think that giving people hydromorphone was a good solution to this. And so things have moved a little bit. There's more, much more support now and there's other, there's programs, but I'm not surprised. It's still controversial. And it goes back to really the first principles of public health, and that is that Our focus should be on preventing people from getting into the problem in the first place. And once people are already um, actively doing something risky, we have much less compassion or care for those people. And that's for cigarette smokers, for people who use alcohol, for people who don't wear their helmets when they're riding their motorcycles. I mean, once people are doing that, uh, we just say, well so you're you know go ahead and kill yourself if you want to we don't really care but we really don't want young people doing what you're doing so the whole uh focus on the the backlash to safe supply is somehow this is going to you know um cause dependency in a whole new generation of people which is totally ridiculous and uh of course, there, there could, you know, people will try drugs and some of those drugs may be from a safe supply, but that's, uh, that's way better. If your kid's uh, purchasing opioids, uh, you'd way rather them get them from a, a safe supply outlet than uh, going to a back alley and buying fentanyl powder from somebody they don't even know. So, it, you know, it's just an ethical, practical approach to this. Not everybody will use it, but at least we ha- should have the, you know, decency to offer people uh, an alternative. Because right now we're basically saying the drug supply is poison. Um, quit or you're going to die. And I think that's a just a, an unethical approach to uh, what's going on now.
0: Yes, I agree. Um, I mentioned that uh, I think earlier on that. I supported safe supply, and, and and certainly my heart goes out to to anyone who loses a child or loved one via whether it be toxic drugs or overdose. Um, but of course, I would think that if your child was using a drug, you'd rather it be a safe drug than a toxic one. Uh, but there always seems to be um, an argument to the uh, to the safe supply. Uh, solution. Uh, and I wonder...
1: One, thing, one quick thought I, I forgot to mention is that the, so much of the focus has been on the heroin and fentanyl supply in the downtown east side. But across Canada, use of opioids has always been an issue in many cities. I worked in Ottawa for four years. There was no heroin. And this was in the, you know, 15 years ago. It was all diverted pharmaceutical drugs. So people are using OxyContin everywhere. Yes. So there were thousands of people purchasing these uh, Oxycontins, and they were all diverted pharmaceutical drugs that were out there. And then Dilaudid came and different things have always been there. So this idea that uh, people shouldn't have access to these pharmaceutical drugs, they've had access to them for decades, it's just that... uh, You know, they were given, but the people were selling their prescriptions all over the place and there was then fake drugs out there. So this is not a a brand new issue that somehow people are purchasing pharmaceutical opioids. This has been the way most cities have um, had their drug use, you know, for decades.
0: Yes. And another important thing to point out, I think, is that, you know, many think that it's only those they see on the downtown east side who are using drugs, when in fact, a good majority of those uh, using drugs are actually living in homes, right? Are people of all, you know, uh, income levels, all demographic, some have families, children, etc. A huge stigma around who the drug user is.
1: Sure. I mean, we we know that from the you know years of watching the coroners' reports, you know where people are found. Uh, certainly, the majority are still very marginalized people that are not holding down jobs, but there are a, a large number that focus uh more recently has been on mostly young men in the trades so there's a our construction industry is often built on the backs of uh day laborers so uh, people get these jobs just a day or a week at a time basically and get paid out and uh a lot of those people do use alcohol and drugs but they obviously need to keep it hidden because nobody's going to hire them if they're known to be using these drugs so everything's Done very quietly undercover. That means they really need to go to dark places to find their drugs and they just get caught off guard continually. So, yeah, there's a lot of people, you know, walking the streets that are dependent on these drugs and they really have no place to go. We've created some of this problem by telling doctors that they've caused the problem. And so there's been a huge pushback to uh, even prescribing these drugs anymore. So there's a lot of people who are on a steady uh, prescription, doing fine on these prescriptions, and they've been cut off by their doctors and all of a sudden thrown into a very uh, precarious situation as far as securing their uh, their drugs.
0: Uh, doctors, that's one that I wanted to chat with you about. It's a personal area to me. I'm always baffled by the lack of knowledge that the average doctor, GP, has on addiction medicine, considering how prevalent this issue is so the average person goes to their doctor says they have an issue and the the doctors they don't have the training they don't have they they know a lot about a lot of things but not often a lot about addiction medicine and that needs to change does it not
1: well i think so but most people who uh you know, see people rather if it's in a dropping clinic, or they have their own uh, primary care clinics, they don't really want to deal with people with substance use They, they, and I think it's a bit of a you know, we we push this idea that it's a disease and it's a specialty, and you need to have all this experience to do it. And that just uh, gives doctors in primary care an excuse: going, well, I you know, I I don't really know enough about this. You better go see uh, somebody else that doesn't even exist. Um, so they're really hands off, and uh, they don't you know they want dependable. Patients in their practice, and they don't really want to deal with it. So they the the downside in really trying to make this uh, you know a brain disease is that people that in the medical profession want it specialized, and they don't really want to deal with uh, people with this problem, even though most people who are using drugs wouldn't consider themselves to have a chronic disease that we've created that medically we've called everything a use disorder like it i guess so it makes it more convenient to discuss it like that and clinic make it clinical but most people are uh using drugs to uh Escape what they ever the situation they're in right now, and it's a trauma pushing thing. And bad things happen to people's lives, and you can turn to alcohol or gambling or um, you know shopping or things that are much more um, socially acceptable. But if you decide that you're uh, you're approach to dealing with your trauma is using drugs that are deemed illegal. You're in big trouble. You know, we don't treat it like that. So a family doctor um, should be asking people how they're doing, you know, not just, you know, if they have a cough, they're having issues with uh, depression, anxiety, not dealing with trauma that's happened to them try and help them through that. The drugs to me are uh, unfortunately just an excuse not to, you know, not to deal with what's really going on with people. And I totally believe that you become dependent and addicted on these things. But there's so much more to it than just it's a brain disease. To approach it like that. Most people who have uh, left their drug use uh, found something better to do with their lives. Things change for them. Things improve. They found somebody who loved them. They got their job back. They things uh, in their lives improved. They were able to deal with some of their trauma, and they can move on. Um, but. Um, I think we've over-clinicalized this thing and uh, we need like specialists and we need doctors to go through four or five years of uh, specialty training. And unfortunately, that just makes it much more likely that they'll want people will find medical solutions to this when the solutions for most people's substance use are not medical, they're they're social, environmental, and and trauma related.
0: I I spoke with Sarah, wife of uh, the Overdose Prevention Society, and she made a comment that really stuck with me and that's regarding uh, Mom Stop the Harm. And it's, she said, if all these mothers, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of mothers are begging for safe supply because of lost children, and they're not getting it. I mean, how can we get it? I mean, these are mothers, you know, holding teddy bears of their children that they've lost at a young age often. Uh, and that is, I mean, the most uh, moving, you know, source to beg for safe supply from government that I can think of. And she identified that and it really hit home for me. Uh, if they can't move the needle, who can? I mean, it's just, uh, it's shocking that days go by and we just, we talk about things like, uh, you know, open drinking in parks and you know all these other issues and you know it just seems so trivial with all the lives that we're losing. And I know it's a repetitive question, but how do we move this needle?
1: Yeah, I did. Uh, in preparation for our chat, I did listen to Sarah and Tara Taylor's uh, interview, which I enjoyed. They're two of my heroes. I work closely with both of them. Yeah, I agree that it's so entrenched in society that once, as I said earlier, once you are identified as somebody who's using these illegal drugs, uh, society doesn't really care that much about you. They, they are way more more interested in preventing young people from starting and if they find and I know there was a recent uh media coverage of a father who lost their teenage daughter and thought that they had probably purchased their opioids from the from a safe supply source and that got a lot of publicity and uh and I think that really does capture where society stands on this that they you know six people could die of a toxic drug supply and we could prevent that by offering them an alternative but if one child uh was thought to ever purchase these drugs that's a you know offside that's a risk that society's not willing to take so uh you know unfortunately you lost your child but um you know we we don't we can't do anything about that uh if it includes uh any uh, a likelihood that this will attract somebody else to uh, to buy or purchase these drugs. So um, the irony is that, you know, this particular story, my understanding is the girl had gone down to the downtown east side and purchased this um, and to the family while, well, you know, at least she purchased something that was, you know, not, not fentanyl, although she probably purchased fentanyl also. So I, I you know, I have nothing but uh, empathy, and my heart goes out to any family who's lost their their child. But um, it's very um, it's very clear that once uh, once a young person has gone down that route, we're not that interested in them anymore. We're much more interested in kids who haven't gone down that route yet, and we think that you know uh, making it a drug free society would be the way to go. And we know that's just never never going to happen. So um yeah, so back sorry, I didn't really answer your question, but I you know, Leslie McBain and the other mothers who kind of lead the charge on this are uh, uh very articulate and very organized and have done amazing work, but it must be, you know, well I know for a fact, um it's, you know, seems to be banging your head against the wall and some of the latest controversy around safe supply to me seems to be stepping back four or five years. I thought we covered all this before. And, you know, we seem to be the conservative government, especially um, in Canada, is kind of taking us back to like before anybody even thought about harm reduction. All of a sudden we're discussing, you know, harm reduction. You know, should we be doing harm reduction? Shouldn't everybody get into treatment and recovery? And we, I thought we covered that 15 years ago. No, that's not that's part of the solution, but it's certainly not going to save many people from currently uh, overdosing or using toxic drugs.
0: Uh, Dr. Tyndall, I have so many um, comments and questions for you. I don't, I don't know where to go first. To be honest, uh, one stereotype that we can't seem to shake, of course, is this data about the drug user. We talked about that a little bit. Uh, Canada, especially British Columbia, there are a lot of new Canadians. So uh, lots of stigmas within those groups. So the South Asian population, um, the Chinese population and others. Um, I know that one of the nonprofits that uh, I work with, Options Community Services, they just launched a home detox program that's targeted towards South Asian um men who are addicted because uh, leaving the job, admitting that you have a problem with dependency, et cetera, is not an option for them. Uh, And there seems to be other places where drug use and dependency, substance use disorder, however you want to describe it, seems to hide out. I think the corporate environment is one of them as well. Um, Because although the corporate environment has maybe a large binder saying what they'll do to help you, if you come forward with your problem, which uh chances are uh from that day forward you will forever be brushed with that you know paintbrush of uh of addiction uh, and it's not a nice one to have so I guess my question to you is that uh you know these uh stereotypes are deadly uh they're living in cultures they're living in you know corporate environments various places um from a medical perspective uh, can you you know, really just clarify for listeners that uh, this Issue of dependency on drugs uh, does not uh, choose based on who you are or what you do.
1: I think there are cultural differences. I mean, all my years, you know, working in this area in in Vancouver and around British Columbia. I mean, certainly, uh, it all kinds of uh, different ethnic groups are impacted by this. But I think they. It probably each society ha- should have their own sort of approach to this. I think that the key or the common thread to all this is people looking to numb their pain somehow. And, uh, and it's in Vancouver or, or British Columbia, uh, using drugs is uh, one way to do that. It's quite accessible and people can uh, can turn to that. But I totally understand. I would think that a lot of uh, a lot of people who, you know, disappear from their families or it's the suicides and things are all, all often related to uh, a difficulty in, in drugs and just the supreme isolation and stigma that that entails. And so and, you know, as long as we make have these drugs illegal and as long as we uh, continue to, uh, you know, clamp down on um you know the dealers and you know try to disrupt and close down the illegal drug supply by making everything illegal and pursuing prohibition i don't see how stigma can change like we've basically that's the ultimate statement of stigma if you do this it's illegal and we'll arrest you and punish you and throw you in jail i mean that that until we kind of accept that drugs are part of society, um, that uh, prohibition, uh, stigma, punishment uh, does nothing but just cause more pain and suffering to people, Um, will never really be able to seriously uh, deal with the stigma issue. And uh, it's very... You know, we in in BC we've made a little bit of progress with the, you know, not arresting people with small uh, supply, but it's not good enough. We still spend far too much of our time and effort trying to interdict drug drug uh, shipments and try to arrest dealers and break up gangs, and we just know that every drug bust just leads to three more drug cartels being set up. I mean, it just doesn't, you know, it it, it just does not do anything. As long as the demand is there, um, the drugs will get, get to the hands of the people who want them. And uh, we need to focus much more on the demand side of things and not the supply. And so we need to help people who are dealing with this, uh, not turn them into instant criminals, not send them into alleys to buy drugs late at night from strangers. We need to open that back up and say, yeah, you're dependent on these drugs. They're useful for you right now, um, but we need to find something better for you because ultimately this is not going to serve you well. And uh, just to have open conversations. And as long as we have the uh, illegal prohibition stance on these drugs, uh, I don't think we can ever overcome the stigma. that's we're making a societal statement that this is highly stigmatized and dangerous and bad behavior, and uh, you must stop.
0: And that's that's very well said. I think that those uh, who are living with substance use disorder and are, are in a really challenging, spot um i don't believe that the canadian treatment and recovery system has caught up with the realities of um addiction, substance use disorder. I also don't think that the disagreements are productive, so we do need to talk about solutions, not what I think or what you think. Um, Any ideas on how we can improve our recovery and treatment system in Canada? Right now, uh, there seems to be a very low percentage of people coming out of treatment centers who are are succeeding.
1: Yeah, well, there's, you know, um, we followed the US to make this a massive industry. And we're dealing with people and families who are super desperate for anything because they're caught in this. terrible cycle and they're you know they're really risking everything by using these drugs and uh, people will want to do anything they can to try to uh, reverse that and so the recovery system isn't accountable to uh, success they're accountable to uh, getting people uh, into some kind of treatment even if they know it's not going to work and the government seems uh you know, quite committed to ke- continue to pour in, you know, millions of dollars into these programs that really don't get to the basis of why people are using drugs in the first place. So you can get people into a detox center recovery and give them a bed and a house and, uh, you know, square meals a day. And, you uh, and chat with them and try to, you know, and, and those, you know, for a short time, people can be quite successful with their, uh, with their abstinence or whatever kind of uh, treatment they're on. But once they're thrown out and back into exactly the same situation and the same trauma and the same challenges that they uh, got there in the first place, um, you know, they, it's pretty predictable that they will uh, revert back to what worked before and that's using drugs. So, um, you know, the, recovery. I mean, I'm all for giving people an opportunity and to, you know, to uh, think about what they're, you know, what they're doing and try to, you know, give them some uh, a, a time of peace to try to work things out. But there really needs to be a continuum. And people got into this issue, the drug use over years, and uh, they're not going to get uh, fix everything in two weeks. So really the recovery part of things um, needs to be a a long term and that requires a lot of investment and a lot of uh, a lot of compassion for people and uh, giving people the opportunities that they need and to work through some of their traumas and uh it once and you know we've again with the legal system the way it is most people leaving recovery have a criminal record they uh have lost so much and uh it's really uh really challenging to get back on track. I've seen it happen many times. There's many examples of that. Um, But it's more than just having a short-term stint in a recovery. It's it's a long-term process for people to work through. And uh, I think that harm reduction and safe supply is really an entry into that you know, into that trajectory. And I've seen the MySafe work that we've done. I've got to know over a hundred people who are getting getting their Dilaudid or hydromorphone every day. And it's remarkable some of the turnarounds when people don't have to spend their days hustling drugs and feeling like every time they use their, they could die. And it gives them a chance to, uh, Settle a bit and get on a little bit more routine and start to work things out and they're surrounded by people who care and there's been some uh, great um, uh, great success stories by by doing that and what Sarah does with the opioids uh, with the overdose Center and. that, and needle exchange, all these things that we try to promote as harm reduction are really entry into uh, into a, a different life for people. And whether you want to call that recovery or, or not, uh, you can. But um, it's really trying to change people's trajectory and give, uh, give people some hope.
0: Yes, I, it's, it's quite interesting, isn't it, that we actually do have safe supply via alcohol. I was in treatment for substance use disorder probably about a decade ago. Some of the worst uh, when it came to withdrawal, being rushed to the hospital in an ambulance were those that were coming off alcohol, which is um, a drug that is regulated and sold and profited by government. So... Uh, we currently have it. I, I suppose it would just be adding other substances to the list.
1: Yeah, I think that's as simple. I mean, alcohol is one example, got overshot. Like we've made it just so available and we've just made it so part of our society. It's very troubling. I, I think we've let the commercialization of alcohol uh, go way overboard. It's way too cheap, way too available, way too uh uh, acceptable as uh, just an activity to to go out and just get drunk. I mean, it's just not a healthy thing to do. It causes far more damage to society than uh, the drugs we're talking about now. So, uh, so it's a, I I do you know often bring up alcohol as an example of how you can regulate something, but uh, because of uh, corporate greed, <laughs> uh, we've just gone way too far the other way with alcohol. I think in our society, so. Um, and it's just led a lot of people who would be unexpected to run into issues with uh, with alcoholism to, to be sucked in. <laughs> so uh, it's a uh, it's a it is a good example where we don't you know, we we make sure there's quality control that people who buy a bottle of beer aren't going to die of uh, some toxic substance in that bottle of beer. But um, I I think that's a whole other podcast of how uh it is. Society is totally overshot and and just made this far too easy and common and, and acceptable and it's really can be quite a dangerous drug for people definitely
0: for sure um i wanted to just shift gears last few questions because i think it's an important and timely topic and that is to vaping uh harm reduction as well uh i know that there is currently um and, cases before the courts uh, regarding vaping as harm reduction. Uh, The taxes have recently skyrocketed on vape juice here in Canada, obviously a concern around young people um, vaping, et cetera. What's the difference between smoking a cigarette and consuming nicotine via a vape device health wise?
1: Well, I think there's good evidence. It's like 95% safer. So there's really no should be no debate that uh, vaping is uh, way safer for you. Nobody's ever died of vaping nicotine. I mean, it's really quite safe. Nicotine itself as a substance should be thought of like caffeine. So it's a stimulant. People obviously become dependent on it which is a a hassle for sure i'm not, i don't think it's i'm glad i'm not you know dependent on nicotine I don't want to be uh just like i don't want to be dependent on coffee i mean so there there's that downside for sure and when people so this is one of the things i'm doing this year is writing a book about vaping um and some people would you know challenge me well what do you care about that for you you know you really need to keep working on uh you know other drugs but in a global sense and a public health sense. Cigarettes is what killing people. And I first got interested in this uh, 10 years ago when I was running an HIV longitudinal study, looking at people using drugs, how they fared as far as their HIV goes. And we had in three years, we had no deaths due to AIDS. No, everybody was on treatment. Everybody was dying of tobacco. So I had like a community group that was advising me on the study. And in a year, People died of tobacco related things and people just were smoking like crazy. And so um, I introduced vapes, you know, 10 years ago to some people in Ottawa and uh, they loved it and uh, they felt instantly better. And so, um, and to me, vaping is like the ultimate definition of harm reduction. You take some very dangerous, risky uh, behavior like smoking combustible cigarettes and you replace it with something that gives people the substance they want, not the toxins are killing them and it's still an action with their hands they can still you know use you know suck the smoke whatever makes them feel comfortable whatever they're addicted to um is there except we've taken all of the poisons out of the uh out of the habit so to me it's the ultimate in harm reduction and uh again back to who cares nobody cares about smokers they're just supposed to quit right so just quit. We don't care if it's safer. We don't want you doing anything like this. And if you're a, if you're a young person, we do not want you becoming addicted to nicotine. We do not want you looking like you're smoking. We do not want all these things. Prohibition, prohibition, don't, don't, don't. We know that doesn't work. Um the, the vaping so-called epidemic in youth in Canada, I mean, most of that's based on you, have you tried vaping in the past 30 days? And at one point, you know, 30 plus percent of high schoolers said they had. Well, We don't, you know, have you tried marijuana in the last 30 days? Have you tried alcohol in the last 30 days? Have you, you know, driven with a drunk friend in the last 30? Like all these behaviors that we're so concerned about, of course, youth try these things. It's just natural. And if you're... Um, We have to just accept that. There's very, very few uh, people, kids who have tried vaping who now smoke cigarettes. This gateway thing is totally disproven. In Canada, youth do not want to smoke cigarettes. It's just uh, a dirty past, you know, it's so 1970s, you know, people just don't want to do it. And so there will be kids who continue to vape, but at a rate probably far less than it used to be with smoking so we know smoking in youth has gone way down despite all this vaping that's happened and even now following vaping it's kind of peaked as far as it's you know um how how uh how prevalent it was and what a novelty it was. So it's really, we've focused all of our attention on preventing youth from vaping and forgot about the four to 5 million cigarette smokers in Canada whose lives could be revolutionized if they just, stopped combustible cigarettes and they they would feel you know that there's so much evidence that within two to three weeks you actually feel better even if you smoke for 25 years your cough gets better your, your exercise tolerance gets a bit better so we can you know not only will it prevent you from getting cancer down the road but you'll actually feel better so we should be doing everything we can to target smokers make it as easy as they can i think vape should be free to people who smoke like we could we just this is such a obvious thing to do for our healthcare system and somehow we've got stuck in this idea that anything you inhale is bad and uh you can't do it even though we know exactly what kills people with cigarettes and none of those things or very tiny levels of those toxins are in, uh, in vape. And so I'm very committed to try to push that, but I still, you know, this far into it, I am still a lonely voice in public health talking about this. My colleagues think I'm crazy. They, they, you know, we just need to tax cigarettes more and we just need to stigmatize the last thing, putting like labels on individual cigarettes. What a waste of ink, you know, it will do absolutely nothing except tell people that the government's trying to do something. So it's really... uh frustrating to see how the opposition to vaping continues despite overwhelming evidence that it's safer despite overwhelming evidence that people can use vaping to quit cigarettes uh, overwhelming evidence that it's not leading to cigarette smoking in youth i mean we people just ignore all this so, so i'm i'm very frustrated in some ways but uh that's my latest little uh <laughs> contribution to try to no. get people <laughs>
0: I think it's, I think it's, uh, I look forward to reading the book when, when do you expect to release it?
1: Okay. It's based on all the things I've learned about harm reduction and drugs. I mean, it's very tied in. It's, It's very much the same principles exactly that, uh, We need to offer people a safe way to do things or a safer way to do things. And even if you believe that vaping was only 5% safer, not 95% safer, you'd still want people to do it. I mean, it's still, it's still safer and it's still, still better. So, um, we, uh, we need to smarten up as far as our, uh, programs around that and, uh, the government, I think, the Health Canada is not totally out to lunch on this. They're trying, but there's so much pushback by the so-called experts on this. And uh, they, people who are have been in tobacco control for a long time um, are so convinced about abstinence that they can't seem to get their head around anything other than that, and it's it's very frustrating.
0: Yeah, it, what you've been saying around uh, not having care for those ones they've you know started smoking or become dependent on drugs, uh, where has empathy uh, gone in amongst mankind? Is my question, uh, and uh, it's disappointing. It's I read an article saying that I think it was one third third of Canadians supported. Um, supported assisted suicide for those who are homeless or something awful along those lines. And I think it really speaks to what you're saying, which is that, you know, unless it hits you personally, right at home via a close family member or friend, you're kind of discarded, which is, uh, just it's depressing.
1: (laughs) It's been, it's fascinating. I've lived in Bali for almost a year and uh, it's very, Fascinating the difference in our society. There's so much poverty here, but there's nobody on the street. And everybody takes care, you know? And uh they uh it's just not it's just not part of the culture that you'd want to see uh to see people sleeping outdoors or you know or or being rejected or isolated and there's uh obviously not the resources for fancy recovery places or you know uh, social housing like it is none of that but it doesn't seem to matter people take care of each other much better and there's much more empathy um and it's just a kinder gentler place and uh canada has become I think, much more hostile and individualistic and not community oriented. And it's uh, it's a refreshing break for me to uh, get away from that for a bit. Um, and not that there's yeah. not wonderful people. You know, I, I uh, I've had the you know opportunity to work with a lot of very committed, nice. It doesn't it's not everybody, but I I really feel that the rhetoric around our community and how we're treating people who uh, who are not as fortunate as us um, is really toxic and and, and upsetting. And uh, it, it, can, it can be different. It doesn't have to be this way.
0: Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. My husband is Dominican, talks about the form of community that they have there. They take care of each other. When he came here, he was shocked by what he saw on the streets. And this is a country where, uh, you know, people often don't have enough to eat. Um, and uh, he was shocked by what he saw in Canada on the streets. So, I think what you're saying um, to Bali and 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 the value of community and care makes a lot of sense for sure.
1: Yeah, you can learn a lot, and I think even our, you know, Indone- indigenous people who are much more community focused, um, but are such a terrible uphill battle because of the intergenerational trauma and what we've done, um, and it's. Uh, the principles though that you can learn from indigenous communities are are very valuable and uh, we don't seem to listen to that um and uh we just heap on you know more discrimination and and punishment to people and it's just uh as I say I think totally unnecessary and why why we've decided to go that direction I I I just don't get it
0: uh Dr Tyndall I I end every conversation with asking about my guest favorite nonprofit or one or two that you, that you support, um, for people to learn about, to donate to if they can, to thank you for the work you're doing in the harm reduction space. Obviously, all the work that you're doing is to help, um, save lives and, uh, so that people can access safer forms of either, um, vaping or, uh, drug supply. Any nonprofits that you'd like to highlight today?
1: Yeah, that's a g- interesting question. I mean, since I've left, I, I mean, I used to there's four or five regular annual charities that I used to give to. Um, since I moved, I haven't been continuing with them and have used it much more for sort of random acts of kindness. Like I just I, I like giving money to people who are, you know, in a rough spot and try to help them along. Um, so I, I, you know, that's been kind of the route I've taken. It's, it's easy just to check off a box and feel that you've, you know, contributed to something, but, uh, I'd like to, I just encourage people just to do some random acts of generosity or kindness, and uh, that goes uh, quite a long way, not only making you feel better, because it's, uh, I do think that just checking off a box and sending a check to an organization gives you a little bit of a, uh, 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 it makes you feel a little better, but uh actually looking somebody in the eye is very powerful. And uh, so um, I encourage people to do that. I, you know, in, in Vancouver, Pivot Legal um, does amazing work. And so I, I like to support them and uh, I'm quite involved in environmental movements. So, you know, eco justice and these kind of environmental groups, I think uh, obviously need tons of support and money. Um, but um, my, the, the biggest whether it's selfish or you know more helpful or not, but as far as feeling like I'm contributing something, um, I'd, I'd encourage people at least once a month to do some random act of generosity to somebody that wouldn't normally expect it.
0: Yeah, that that's great advice. It also connects them directly, right, to that individual. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, I know there's a a time change, a huge one. And uh, for you to make this work took some uh, rescheduling. So thank you, Dr. Tyndall, for being with me today. I really do appreciate it.
1: Okay. No, I enjoy talking to you. Okay. Have a good day. Be kind and connect with authenticity. You are listening to Rachel Fexton Connects.